Good morning, Church of the Holy Spirit. Good to see you all. You know, I love that passage of Scripture. Um, it, it is a passage that has ministered to me a lot right there. It, right after that, Jesus, he had said to them, uh, he, he, they came to find him across the, river, or across the lake, and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And they said, this was a hard teaching, and the entire group left. And he turned to his disciples and said, will you leave as well? And they said, to whom else will we go? So this morning, my prayer is that we're here this morning saying, who else will we go to? We're going to go to Jesus and just Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't want to just speak some words. I don't want to speak just some theology, Father. I want to, I want to, to have you minister to us here today, Lord. That you would take your word, that you would seep it into our hearts, that we would be changed by it. <clears throat> Not be changed by words of Mike Massey or by anything else said in this place, but that would be changed by you and you alone. Holy Spirit, come have your way. How many of you know that you're full of the Holy Spirit, but God, we're asking you to come fill us fresh and new in this place this morning. Amen? Amen. So I just want to read for you again before we jump in. I want to read Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 again for you because that's where we're going to be speaking today. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you and I have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Can you just say, I'm his workmanship? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. So I've been married to my beautiful bride, Sheena, for 26 years. There we are, 26 years and 26 pounds ago. That is us right? And not 26 pounds for her, but that's for me, right? We walked down the aisle all those years ago full of anticipation and excitement. We were full of all the idealistic joys of family, rearing perfect children. Don't you know we all have perfect children, right? Rearing perfect children. We were going to achieve status and success, financial prosperity, and most of all, we were going to have happiness. We were self-confident. Look at that. Looks like a young JFK, doesn't it? We were self-confident. I said self-confident. We were self-confident and self-assured. Together, we broke onto life scene. We were going to be a power couple. Granted, in Roanoke, but still, we were going to be a power couple. In our minds, in our minds, we were young and sexy and attractive we were fun and full of life. 
as I took that garter off her leg with my teeth as Whitney Houston sang, I'm every woman. Right? We were fun and full of life. We were sure we could handle anything that came our way, no matter what it was. But we had no idea. Now, I want you to know she started that. I did not. I just want you to know I was going to be kind, and she jammed it in my face. We had no idea what was going to be facing us over 26 years. We had no idea of the conflict we would face in marriage. We had no idea of the successes and failures in marriage. We had no idea in life as a family, the loss we would face and the tragedy we would face. We had no idea of the joys and the temptations of the extreme happiness. We had no idea of the times of sadness. We also had no idea that the same life that brings adventure and trips and family and joy could also roll through times of great mundane and great times of just years of mundane. We called those years of our kids all being five and under the dark years. Anyone else? Can I get an amen? Right? Like dinner and bath time and bedtime and and now, of course, they are 23, 22, and all of them probably getting married soon. And it's like, put on your footy pajamas. Get back in bed with us. Come on. Right? We had no idea. We had no idea that there would be times of feeling suffocated and lost, feeling like we didn't know our way or maybe had never found our way. See, here's the truth about that Mike and Mass, that Mike and Sheena 26 years ago. Here's the truth about that couple. That couple had no idea, one, because they were young and stupid, but primarily because that couple did not have a solid foundation or understanding of their identity in Christ Jesus. They had no idea, that Mike and Sheena, who and who they were in Jesus Christ, who and whose. That Mike and Sheena were churchgoers. We went here. We were very involved. We taught Sunday school. We led Young Life. We led the youth group. We went on mission trips. We were those who prayed and, and attended and did Bible studies. And we knew all the rules about being a good follower of Jesus. But we did not only lack a solid theology of our identity, we lacked a reality of our identity in Jesus Christ. We had no foundational grasp of who and whose we were in Jesus. We had no idea that Mike and Sheena, that our Father in heaven truly saw us and how he saw us and that he saw us apart from our failures, our good things and our bad things. We had no idea that it was not about our good deeds that Isaiah says is filthy rags. Good deeds are good, but they were filthy rags. We had no idea. We found ourselves in our first year of marriage very involved in church and community, doing a lot of great stuff, all the right stuff required of being a good follower of Jesus, but we were miserable in our marriage. And in the midst of an identity crisis at 28 and 26 years old, the only reason why we remained married was simply because divorce was not an option, simply because it was too shameful to walk through that kind of process. And so we had a choice. Were we going to remain in this kind of place and live parallel lives or were we going to stop, breathe and discover who 
and whose we were and are in Jesus. You see, the the cure to that identity crisis, the cure to the identity crisis that is in our culture today is not behavior management. It's not marriage or life techniques. It's not good behavior, good deeds, while all those things are great. It's not that, and not that those things can't help, but it's not the cure, and no cure can begin with a behavioral fix or behavior management. The cure, the fix, if you will, is to really know, not just in theology, but in reality, the beautiful truth, and I'll say it again and again and again, of who and who we are in Jesus, who Jesus is, who we are, who we were without him, and who and whose we now are because of him and because of this beautiful Jesus. So 26 years ago, I began a discovery or a rediscovery of Ephesians 2, chapter, verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It became my lifeline. And to this day, almost every morning of the week, I get up, I roll out of bed, I plant my feet, my, my feet on the floor with my knees are in pain. <laughs> and I speak Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, over myself. I speak it over my wife. I speak it over our family. I pray it over our family. It's become my lifeline every day because some days the identity battle is all day long. Some days we live in it with the confidence of who he says we are, who he is, and who he's called us to be. But most days it's a battle all day long and the assault on our identity by this enemy is constant. And if you don't believe it's not constant against your family, if you don't believe it's constant against your kids, we've got to wake up and pull our heads out of the sand because he is after our identity because he wants to make us lose heart. And the only way he can make us lose heart is if we forget or never knew or have never learned not just a theology but a reality of who he is and who we are and who he's called us. So Paul wrote to a culture much like ours all those years ago. He wrote it about 62 to 64 AD. He was in prison he was writing to a culture that was, uh, had a crisis of sexuality and identity. He was writing to a culture that was the wealth and epicenter of the known world at that time. The wealth and power and influence ruled. They were in political and race upheaval. They were, there was a worship of sexuality and gender identity. There was a, a, a worship of the freedom of self, self, self. It was all about self. And they did it through a lot of horrific and horrible practices. And Paul writes this beautiful letter to that church who was experiencing freedom and Gentiles were coming to know the Lord in droves and suddenly they're in a, in a place of identity crisis in the midst of this culture. And he writes to them and he spends the first half of this letter writing in a grammatical language called indicative. And he turns the corner right around chapter four and he starts writing in the imperative. And the indicative means the reality, the truth of, the reality of something, what is really true at its core about a thing or a person. And then he turns the corner and starts writing in the imperative. Now that you know what is true about God, true about you, what is real about who and whose you are, now this is how you live. See, we must know who we were and who we are before we can know where we are going or where we are headed or what we are doing. 
Too often we run ahead as followers of Jesus, trying to fulfill the law. And we're doing just like what the Jews did all those years ago. We're, we're replacing Jesus with our, with our good works. We've got to know who we are and whose we are in order to know where we're going and what our purpose is. See, who we are in Jesus is our purpose. But we also have to remember, and it starts with remembering who we were without Jesus to effectively understand and live in the reality of who and whose we are in Jesus. Scripture tells us who we were. Look at what it says about who we were. It says, and you, and this is you and me, you were dead in the trespasses. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Look at what scripture says we were. And again, we don't want to dwell on what we were, but we got to know what we were to know who we are and where we're headed. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead, and the Greek word there, dead, means dead, dead as a doornail. We were dead in our trespasses. We were lifeless, and we were following the course of the world, meaning we were right with everybody else, following the course of affluence and influence and money and power and fame and all the stuff, trying to fill our identity with anything that would satisfy but was empty and unfulfilling. And the reason why it's necessary that we know that we were just like the rest of the world is so we don't put ourselves up here and look down at everybody else just because we're now in Jesus. We were. We were dead. We were following the course of the world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. That's not just in theory. We were following, before Jesus, we were following Satan. There is no in-between. Either you are fully all about Jesus or you are following something else. You cannot have two gods. You can only have one. It's just Jesus. And today we've got to be a body of men and women who have our eyes solely and completely fixed on Jesus with nothing else. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's not Jesus plus my 401k. It's not Jesus plus my family. It's not Jesus plus my affluence or my influence. It is just Jesus. That's it. That's it. That's the only thing that stands. Just Jesus. We were following the prince of the power of the air and we were by nature objects of wrath. In my core of core, before Jesus rescued me and set me apart, I was by nature an object of wrath. I did not have peace with God. I was against God. But you know what's so beautiful? But God. But God. We need to get some life in here. Can you just say, but God? But God. Like, but God, but God, but God. You know that word, but, the little tiny word? It means everything before is completely irrelevant because what comes directly after. But God. Being so rich in mercy. Meaning, Again and again and over and over and over again, he's pouring out mercy. And mercy, the word mercy means not getting what we do deserve. And the word grace meaning getting so much more than we could comp comprehend or which is unfathomable to us. 
The greatest picture I can think of mercy and grace is mercy would be if someone harmed my daughter and did something to her. Mercy would be I'm not going to throat punch you or kill you or lock you up. But then grace would be I'm going to give you $5 million on top of it. That is mercy and grace. Not getting what we do deserve and getting so much than we could possibly. God, but God being so rich in mercy. Even when we were dead, it says, even or while we were dead, we are now made alive in Christ Jesus. That word alive is resurrected. We've been resurrected in Jesus. Can I get an amen about that? I mean, so often as believers, we hear that, oh, I'm alive in Jesus. That's so exciting. Like I can't understand it. Did you know we're alive in Jesus? We're alive in Jesus. Hey, Craig, do you know we're alive in Jesus? We're alive in Jesus. Hey, let's give a little golf clap. Jesus, we're alive in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for making me alive. Thank you, Jesus. Appreciate it. We, yes. We are alive in Christ Jesus. Alive. We've been saved by grace through faith. That's a theological term that we toss around, but we've got to come to reality and grips with the fact that I have been saved. You have been saved by a grace that is beyond reckoning. It is unfathomable. And it is simply by faith so that I cannot boast. I have nothing to boast about. I cannot look upon anyone else and think I'm better than anyone else because we are all level at the foot of the cross. Wow. Black, white, Hispanic, Jew, Gentile, we are all level at the foot of cross because we've been saved by grace through faith so that we cannot boast. And then he's taken it a step further. He said, not only that, I'm gonna seat you with me in heavenly places. We have access to the throne of grace and there we will find strength and mercy in our time of need. The literal translation there of seated with him in heavenly places means we are seated on the Papa's lap. Wow. Amen. You know, my youngest is 17 now and he's probably most like me, which is probably maybe why I like him the most. I don't know, I'm not sure. He kind of goes through life pushing the envelope all the time. He's probably my most irreverent. God love him. He gets in the most trouble probably, but he's sweeter than sweet, tender than tender. But when he was probably three, four years old, he would climb out of his crib. He would flip out of the bed. We couldn't figure out a way to keep him in the bed. And he'd come in our room and I was kind of the, the dad that was like, ugh, go back to bed. Even though I was really a softie about that. But one night he was in the room and I've shared this story here before, but one night he was in the room and Sheena was asleep and she needed to sleep. And I see him at the foot of the bed. It's dark, and I see the top of his head. And you know, because he's three or four, he doesn't know I can see him. <laughs> you know, little kids, they think, if you don't see me, I, you know. So he's, he's got his head down here. His eyes can't be seen. And I see a head moving in the bed, and I, and I say, Jacob. The head stops. Jacob, look at me. He rears up, looks over the bed. And I say, Jacob, come here, come here. And so he sprints, jumps in the bed. He's laying on my chest. He's hotter than hot, you know, little kids. I'm laying there holding him and I'm whispering to him, Jacob, why are you blah, blah, blah. He keeps going, shh, daddy, shh. Jacob, watch this house. Shh, daddy, shh. Why do you keep telling me to shh? Because, daddy, I listen to your heartbeat. That is the picture of being seated with him in heavenly places. We've been invited to lay on his chest and listen 
to his heartbeat, not because of our good behavior or our good works or our good deeds, but because he says, you are son, you are daughter. You've been saved by grace through faith. And I have seated you with me here in heavenly places. And why did God do it all? You know why? Because of our good behavior? No. Because we were worth it? No. You know why he did it all? Verse 7 tells us, so that in the coming ages, for generations upon generations upon generations, he would show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why did he rescue us? Because he's kind. Why did he redeem us? Because he's good. Why did he call me son or daughter and give me inheritance? Because he's kind. Why did he seat me with with him in heavenly places? Because he's good. And why did he do it? So that all generations and all time, he would continue over and over and over and over again to show us his kindness, his immeasurable riches and kindness and his grace. Wow. That is a God worth loving. And we don't get to boast about it. Do you know we're the only faith of all the religions that is a free gift and we take it for granted and we squander it, people? Every other faith, whether you're Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and I'm not knocking any other faith, but every other faith requires some kind of work or passage on our part to get in the door and get some kind of salvation. And this is the only one that says, through Jesus, you're covered under the blood. And there is no work required by grace, through faith, you are saved. And then, this is unfathomable. He takes it a step further. He says, not only have I done all that, not only have I done it just because of my kindness, you know what I've also done? I've made you my workmanship. And that word workmanship is poema in the Greek. It means masterpiece or work of art. I have made you my poem, my work of art, my masterpiece for all the world to see that I am the beloved and you are my beloved and I have rescued you and called you sons and daughters, seated you with me in heavenly places so I can put you on display for the entire world to see. Holy goodness. Wow. Where is workmanship? You see, why this is so important that we've got to get a hold of this, and some days it's going to be a theology that we recite over ourselves all day long, why we've got to get a hold of this is because there's this weird mystery in the Scripture that God has still allowed Satan to have some kind of power on this earth. He's lost all his teeth. He has no more. He's been defeated, but the, and the battle is over and won, but there's still some skirmishes along the way. He is victorious. We've now been sent to reclaim land, but he still has some power. And Revelation talks about that there is an accuser of the brethren. When I was growing up, it was the accuser of the brethren, right? Amen. Like there is still this accuser of the brethren. He's the father of lies. And for whatever reason, he is permitted to go before the throne of grace day in and day out and accuse us before the king. Imagine, imagine, if someone came and tried to accuse my daughter or sons to me day in and day out. And you know what it says throws down the accuser of the brethren? Revelation 12, 11 tells us what throws him down. It's the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. 
The blood of the lamb, just like the Israelites all those years ago when they were in the wilderness and the angel of death flew over their house. If there was blood over their doorpost, the angel didn't stop and look in and say, do you have the right pedigree? Do you have the right behavior? Are you from the right family? No, if you're under the blood, you're under the blood. And then it was the word of their testimony. And this is our testimony. This is the testimony that you have every day. I was, I was, I was, but God, now I am. And I'm saved by grace through faith and I'm seated with him and I've been made his workmanship, his poema, his work of art to go do good works in this world. That is your testimony. You are his masterpiece. And when we combine the word of God and prayer and start to pray like that every day, it breaks strongholds. It's like putting two sticks of dynamite together and blowing up the enemy's lies. We've got to start declaring the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony over our households, over our kids, over our schools and over our our workplaces. We've got to start declaring, I was lost, but God, I'm now found. I was blind, but God, now I see. I was at one time a sinner, but God, I am now a saint who sometimes does some really stupid stuff. That is the word of your testimony. Do not give the enemy any more ground in your family, your household, your schools, your places of business. Take back what the enemy has stolen by reclaiming your your identity given to you by God and God alone. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we who were lost are now found. We're so grateful, God, that we who were blind, we now see and we have nothing to boast about but Jesus and him crucified. Amen.